This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple and natural ingredients. Learn more at mainecrisp.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Every time I'm on this podcast, I'm interviewing an extraordinary person who inspires me in their everyday life, in their cooking, and the way they interact with the world. Today, I am so incredibly excited to have someone I've been fangirling on. My, my kids think I have a crush on her. She's a Brit, an expert cook, a beautiful writer. It's Zoe Ajonia. I met Zoe because of her book, Zoe's Gone a Kitchen, which is being republished. It was published first in 2017. So let's just start with a bit of your background because you grew up a little bit in Ghana, mostly in London, with an Irish mother and a Ghanaian father. And this book is partly a journey deep into your family. Can you tell us a little bit about it? The most important thing to say about all of this is that my parents are immigrants to the UK um, in the 70s. So my Irish mother from West Cork, like a really, really tiny place called Bantry Bay, even smaller than that, a tiny enclave called Snarve, which no one will ever heard of unless you're very, very Irish indeed. And then my dad from Ghana in Accra, and like they met at um, a party in Kilburn. And this was in the 70s, in a time where it was no blacks, no Irish and no dogs. So, you know, that kind of politics of the moment in which I'm born into is kind of really ingrained in my whole identity. I'm super, super aware just by my own identity of like social justice, inequality and all of the things that go around the politics of identity and you know I, I spent all available moments not in school in Ireland so every holiday every half term I had a really thorough understanding of what my Irish culture and identity looked like or at least in the very vast stereotypes of what Irish culture and identity looked like so I understood my place in that and then you know growing up as a third culture kid in England feeling completely lost in England when it comes to identity and not having extended Ghanaian family in London, so not having any Ghanaian roots or familiarity. And because it was a working class household, not having the funds to, you know, pop off to Ghana whenever we felt like it. So Ghana was this kind of really separate part of me, this mystery. And my dad, who's Ghanaian, was really, let's be polite about it, was very inconsistent in my childhood. But when he was around, he would nine times out of ten, have with him or be in the process of acquiring ingredients such as kenke, which is fermented maize dough, or um, shito, this traditional hot pepper sauce condiment made with smoked fishes. Vastly different textures, flavours and smells to what I was used to. And I had this absolute fascination and obsession with it. A, because I was a really curious child, looking for excitement and I suppose intellectually curious to some level as well. And then I could see that in both my parents as immigrants... Even though my mum was really close to Ireland, she still had this um, excited fixation with parcels that would come from my grandmother in Ireland. So my grandmother in Ireland would send soda bread and galty cheese and red lemonade and all these amazing Irish things. And we would all get very excited about it, my mum in particular, because of the nostalgia, because of the, the going home through the food. And I noticed that that was what was happening for my dad as well when he cooked. And he was cooking for himself in this kind of selfish way. It's quite interesting because in reading about your father and the cooking, you would ask him all these questions and he wasn't really so interested. And he's like, why is this interesting to you? But why, why was he cooking for one? Why did he keep that to himself, do you think, as opposed to saying, you know, let me share this, let me bring you more into my world? The truth is I'm never going to know the real answer to that because of um, his laconic ways and also now his schizophrenia. But when I was a kid, I thought I found that very challenging and frustrating because he wouldn't teach us tree or fancy or anything like that. And he just didn't have any desire for us to embrace the culture he came from and I think that contextually he was a very very smart guy who came up against a lot of obstacles in being able to fulfill his dreams and 
goals and things like that. And his big dream, obviously, in coming to England was to achieve this other path, this new gateway to life. Because often, you know, they're paved with gold until you get here and you realise it is just crumbly, dirty, shitty cement. So he was going through all of that, I suppose, and his focus was on assimilating us into the culture where we were. He was very much focused on academia and books and study and learning. And if the conversation wasn't about that, there wasn't really a conversation going on. So I think it was about pushing us to look forward rather than looking back. But in terms of my own maturity, I've, I've forgiven him for that because I understand now what must have been going on internally for him. But also I've come to appreciate perhaps what he hadn't appreciated then. And the world has moved on and changed, you know, socially and politically things have changed as well. So, you know, it's imperative now, I think, to be able to go back in order to bring something forward and especially when it comes to food and cooking. So, you know, I had to transport myself back to Ghana to be able to have a solid relationship with it despite all the wonderful things I've learned through him. I had to have my own relationship with the cuisine. Was there ever a pull between, maybe you would focus on, you know, Ireland and and that would be the food that you explored. I mean, you knew it so well. But it just strikes me that you have parents from these two different cultures. You're a mix of both. But the fascination you had didn't draw you deeper to Ireland. It actually drew you to make that trip to Ghana and then to be cooking Ghanaian food. There wasn't a great deal of mystery around Ireland for me. You know, it's like, do Irish people drink a lot of whiskey? Yes, check. I've seen that happen. And I'm aware. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) But you're saying it's the sense of mystery that drew you. But you started cooking because you were trying to make some money when you were pursuing um, a writing degree. Is is that right? That's right, yeah. So, I mean, how this whole thing came about, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen was a gift the universe gave me that I was trying to refuse, if you like. And it started quite, you know, as an opportunistic moment of me trying to make some money, having returned from the States where I'd travelled around for three months on Amtrak and by car having this great time and spending all my money. And I came back without any. And there was this opportunity because I live in Hackneywick and there's this big arts festival that used to happen once a year. Also just to say that Hackneywick is this big creative, used to be, hub where, you know, artists and photographers and so on dwelled for cheap rent in warehouses, essentially. And we used to have these open studios. And at that particular juncture in time in 2010 my apartment was being used as a video studio gallery and so I was kicked out of it with literally nothing to do and thousands of people were suddenly in Hackney Wick for these open studios but there was nowhere for them to eat or drink so I was like hang on a minute I can see a gap in the market let me fill it with some peanut butter stew and I chose peanut butter stew because it was one of those dishes that was famous amongst my friends and I because I was continually being asked to recreate this dish over and over again and it was different enough that I knew most people will probably find it appealing and I knew the smell is just amazing so when I made this outside the smell was wafting up into Hackneywick and of course I had a queue pretty quickly and the queue didn't stop and then there was a party outside my house and then there was lots of people asking questions about the food and where is it from and da, da, da. And in the, in the unpicking of all the questions a lot of horrific stereotypes were coming up and misconceptions and all of these bigger questions like why don't people know about this food I just got the idea that oh this is fun and people were like you know oh can you are you going to do this again next week and I was like no probably not because I'm, I'm not a caterer and and that was the battle I had I've basically I had a lot of fun doing it so I kept doing it because it would put money in my pocket and it was fun and so it became this way for me to support myself for two years over the MA so I could just focus on reading and writing and not answering to like the man and that's how it started and then over the course of that two years whilst on the MA I, I popped to Berlin with some friends on a road trip as part of the course And I fell in love with Berlin and then I decided, oh, how can I stay here? I know, I'll cook. And I just started doing Ghana kitchens in Berlin. And then, you know, over the course of two years, it just built up very organically, very quickly, this um, notoriety, if you like, for bringing contemporary West African food to the UK and to Berlin as it happened at the same time, which was not my intention, but it is just what happened. What's the first thing you cooked? Like when you had that idea, oh, there's a market hole to fill, you had to have had confidence in your ability to cook. You had to have somewhere in between the times that I know about have figured out how to cook for a lot of people or experimented with this food. What's that part? No, I mean, I was just foolish and brave, I think. So... (laughs) I mean, I had always cooked, right? I mean, I loved cooking. I didn't think I was a particularly 
adept or talented cook, but I loved cooking and I loved having dinner parties. You know, even when I was at school, like I was cooking for the other latchkey kids. I think my friend Lee Crook once said to me, oh, you're not bad at cooking, are you? And I was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> that was like, that was the biggest review I had before I started Ghana Kitchen. So I was a feeder, like that was just who I was. When it came to Ghana Kitchen, for some reason, and I, I honestly don't know where I got the guts from, but... It was just like, oh, this is a really good idea. I'm going to do it and I'm just going to see if I can do it. So from 2010 to 2011, that same weekend for the festival, I had the audacity to go to a catering company and hire, you know, like these big chafing dishes and that. I was very confident that it would be successful. And like I got all my friends. We built a restaurant in my flat. We made tables, we made chairs, we put fabric everywhere we turned it into a restaurant and it was like a fun art project that involved food because they were all artists you know they were all working as waiters and waitresses for free and we were turning over that weekend I think I did about I don't know five or six hundred covers it was consistently sold how and people thought they were in a restaurant and once I decided that okay this is a business and here's the mission statement like why does it need to exist to bring African food to the masses why because people don't understand that Africa is not a country and I had grown up in the 80s with this really negative stereotype many negative stereotypes around Africa the famine the poverty the the distrust of its leaders the incompetency of its leaders and I thought this narrative is so outdated so outmoded and is very singular and so I wanted to change all of these things because I'm a person who has big ideas all the time (laughs) you know and I think I was just carried by the momentum of the bigger idea the bigger vision of what it was doing more than I was concerned about being a cook or a chef let's just talk a little bit about your trip to Ghana when you met your extended family and discovered recipes and it seems like it was a pivot point in your confidence about the type of cooking that you wanted to do yourself. Yeah absolutely so by the time 2013 had come around and I made this trip I was contemplating this trip back to Ghana. I had been cooking, I guess, the, the handful, or like I think it was probably eight to ten recipes that my dad had consistently cooked, or my mum had taken up consistently preparing in his absence anyway. What did he think of you and the cooking? Yeah, it's a funny one. I think he laughed a lot. He doesn't speak very much, my dad. So <laughs> his communication comes through like the brightness in his eyes or whether or not he thinks it's funny. And when Zoe's Ghana Kitchen started, I think he thought it was really amusing. That's the general sense I got initially was, oh, this is quite funny. As, as it grew and got bigger, pride came with that amusement. But I think initially it was just like, oh, how curious that she's doing this. It was built on his eight recipes, which I think is fascinating. I don't think he ever really understands the significance of what I do in terms of my relationship to him. Perhaps I've never properly translated that to him, actually, now that I say it out loud. But yeah, there is, there is something very ironic in the fact that the man who almost refused to teach me how to cook then becomes like this dominant theme of my life and that I go off and learn and then start teaching other people. So it is a very weird, full circle, strange thing that's going on. And now he's very excited for the fact that I'm like, you know, in New York and probably fulfilling some of the dreams that he he once had. That gives me goosebumps. 2013, Ghana. Mm, yeah, so the trip. Um, I went back and I was scared because lots of reasons. I'm At this point in my 30s, I'm pretty confident about who I am in the world. I'm out, I'm queer, I'm outspoken. I don't put up with much bullshit. And I'm going to like meet a family who I haven't had any real contact with since I was a toddler. And also behind that, there was some like murky, uh, unfinished kind of threads of what happened when I was a kid. Like, why was I in Ghana? How long was I there for? It was very secretive in my childhood, the whole business around that. You know, my mum didn't like to talk about it. And interestingly, just before I went there, my mum kind of sat down with me and I felt like she wanted to have a conversation before I found out another version of what it was but um you know essentially they were two broke kids who just had a kid and didn't know what they were doing um and couldn't afford me you know she didn't even have a flat to stay in she I was born in a convent for unmarried mothers so she was in a dire situation and because I'm the first born female in Ghanaian culture that's quite a big deal luckily for me so my grandmother was very very keen to to squeeze my cheeks and (laughs) impress upon me (laughs) or all of her, you know, matriarchal wisdom. 
from the line. And anyway, so they gratefully received me as a gift. And it ended up being that I found out I was there for six months. But I mean, what it was, was I was only supposed to be there apparently for a few weeks while my mum was getting a job sorted and a flat sorted. And um, they basically fell in love with me. My grandmother did and didn't want to give me back. And this was all happening at the time when there was a coup going on in Ghana. So it all got very politically difficult um, for me to get in or out. And eventually I got out with somebody who was a general smuggled me onto a plane, apparently. I don't know if I'll ever fully get all the details about that. But all that is to say, I mean, my mum didn't have a very safe and trusting relationship with my family because they had kept me for longer than they had said. And so I didn't have a very good narrative about them growing up, you know. So going back, I didn't know what I was going into in terms of what that story was going to unpack. And then all the obvious stuff, like modern woman in a very traditional culture, how would they receive me? Would they accept me? All of that stuff. What was that like? Do they shrug their shoulders and they're like, we love you for exactly who you are or...? I wish. (laughs) No. No, no, no. Not quite like that. Um, I mean, honestly, I didn't make a big announcement on it either, but there was a lot of questions about, you know, when am I getting married? When am I doing this? When am I going to have kids? And I had to keep emphasising that, you know, I was a strong, independent businesswoman and I did not need a man. There was a lot of me just taking a feminist stance on much of what they were asking me about. But, you know, grandmothers know. And I think she she and I had this unspoken understanding um, that wasn't available to me and everybody else in that family, honestly. But we had a knowingness between us on most things. And I think she very much understood that I was gay. Um, and actually, she had been to the UK and visited me in Brighton, which is, for anybody who is queer in the world, knows that Brighton in England is the mecca for gayness. Um, and I was living with a girlfriend there in Brighton and she had visited us at that flat and she had questioned where the other bed was. So I think she already knew. But more importantly, or equally importantly, was the food, right? And I was struggling back in London with not so much like whether I wanted to keep doing traditional recipes because I I really didn't because that wasn't what I was most interested in. I was more in the place of, yeah, but what else and what, what next? And so when I was going to Ridley Road and to these markets where there was an amazing bevy of, you know, elder African women who we call aunties in our culture who were guiding me and helping me. They could only help me to a point because they were also limited by what they knew, you know what I mean, and what they did with the ingredients and what their family knew about it. And oftentimes they didn't know, you know, there's a lot of communication barriers just around what an ingredient was called or known by because as well Ghana has so many tribal languages and so getting to the, the bottom of what a thing was and what we could then do with it was like the hardest part. But, you know, they gave me a, a solid grounding in, in lots of stuff, but there was no context for what else beyond what, you know, their grandmother and their grandmother had done with it before them. So going to Ghana then, I was really concerned with, and when I started the whole thing, I, I called it Zoe's Ghana Kitchen because I was really, I wanted to be super clear that this is my affair with these ingredients this isn't a Bible, this isn't didactic, I'm not the culinary expert, but this is my relationship with this stuff and I want to share it because it's exciting. So going back to Ghana was super important just for me to be centred in myself, grounded in myself, in that I would have a thorough, or as thorough as I could have at the time, understanding and grasp of what was traditional, what was indigenous, Because obviously, you know, my dad was doing his version and my mum was doing her version of my dad's version. So there was no, like, direct line to truth there apart from the truth of us enjoying and eating the meal. So it was important for me to go back to understand what was authentic in those terrible air quote marks, but then also to have the surprise of the abundance, you know, in this wealth of fresh ingredients and plant-based diet and amazing seafood and just the array of spices that were indigenous to the country, as well as obviously everything that was available through the spice routes and the colonials, what they had left behind, which was what Ghanaians were eating every day, you know? And so suddenly I had this, my larder basically multiplied by a thousand percent. And I was like, wow, what is this? Like, I could, there's so much I can do here. As an example, having um, jollof like in my grandmother's house. My grandmother has a housemaid called Mercy, and her tribal um, affinity is Ashanti. 
my aunt Evelyn, who's Ewe, so up by the Volta region, and my grandmother, who's Fanti. And obviously, like, jollof is, like, one of the key dishes, especially then, that's, like, how you unlock the nation's cuisine. So I thought it was really important to understand from them how they made jollof, right? And it became clear that basically each one of them gave me a very solid recipe and process, but they were all different, you know, and they were all different because they were from different tribes and different parts of the country, so different things went into it. And just that example then showed me tradition looks different from household to household, you know. As long as you can be grounded in the basics of what is true to the dish, it's a rice dish, it has a certain number of fragrant spices, it has an amount of heat, you know. It's like, oh, I can, I can play. So my jollof seasoning, which includes things like fresh thyme and maybe uh, garlic or, or dawadaw or whatever I was putting into it at the time, suddenly I was like, okay, this is fine. I can relax. I'm allowed to do this, you know? That also gave me this kind of creative license when I came back to use the ingredients in different ways. It's like, okay, so this is a garden egg. It's basically an aubergine. Why is it only ever plopped into this same three stews without any love or care what else can we do with it and and you know so on and so that's how the cookbook comes to life then because I came back a with much more sort of stronger base of knowledge around what was traditional and then that license to not reinvent but reimagine what some of those dishes might be but also okay but how can we use these flavors in other ways and I was on a mission of accessibility and I was on a mission of also trying to get the diaspora to re-engage and find value in the cuisine in a new way because I think most people were like well why am I going to go to a supper club to eat what I eat at home all the time so even like the diaspora who would consider themselves foodies and be going out to the latest Japanese opening or the latest Korean or like do you know what I mean there was a barrier even with them to get them to to value this food outside of their their home. I'm curious about when you went to Ghana and there's this moment where, you know, you haven't really told them that what you do in life is cook. Um, and in fact, you cook food from Ghana. <laughs> and they're like, really? Um, what was it like to cook food for them in their kitchen? Well, first of all, I didn't want them to know that I was a cook in case that's what they made me do constantly 24-7 is just be the house cook. But also, I didn't know how to explain what I did because supper clubs were still new in the UK and in, definitely in Berlin. Um, and pop-ups, all of that was a fresh kind of approach to hospitality at the time. And so it was even harder to try and explain what that would be to them. And yeah, I kind of kept it under my hat for a bit. At the same time, all I was doing was asking them about food and cooking and you know, making them take me to markets. And so one day at Kaneshi Market with my Aunt Evelyn... No, it was the morning of going to the market because my uncle was like, why are you so interested in this? And so I had to tell them. I didn't have to. I chose to tell them what I did. And then there was a conversation about... So it went from me being shy about telling them I'm, I'm this cook that does cool stuff with Ghanaian food to then getting quite an ego about it. I was trying to make myself sound much more impressive than what was actually happening. Or I was just trying to give parity to what everybody else thought I was doing was quite impressive. But then my uncle would be like, oh, so you're a kitara, which is almost like an insult because it's like, oh, you just cook food. And I was like, e yeah, I guess that's, yeah, that's it. I'm a caterer. Um, which is obviously really different to being an accountant or a lawyer or some other impressive career that they expect you to have. And so there was a little bit of, I think, disappointment or something around the fact that that's what I did. But also confusion because they couldn't understand... A, how I knew what the ingredients were. B, that I had access to them in London. Like, that blew their mind. It's like, you have kinky? I was like, yeah, we got kinky. And then the test, obviously, I would have to cook for them. So we were in the market and we were getting the ingredients for Inkatsin Kwan. So Inkatsin Kwan is the tree name or the fancy name for groundnut soup, which is this um, ubiquitous West African dish with the peanuts. You know, this was the dish I was famous for, in air quotes, in London and Berlin. Um, and now I was having to cook it for my family in Accra. Um, and also, 
in a really different kind of way because Evelyn does like a surf and turf version of this. You know, at home, I would probably just be making it with like lovely bone-in lamb or mutton or something like that. And at the market, she was picking up these giant land snails and blue crabs and welle, which is like cowhide, all these like weird things, like weird and inverted commas. And I was like, Jesus, how am I going to cope? But um, in the event, we made the meal together um, I needed her guidance on how to get a land snail out of its shell, and I can tell you it's not pleasant. You have to basically stab it through with a skewer and twist it and pull it out. Um, but, you know, if you're going to eat meat, you've got to do the work. So I made this dish anyway, groundnut soup, and then we served it, and everybody loved it, and everybody was surprised <laughs> that they loved it. And then the biggest compliment... I've noticed that a lot of African restaurants, regardless of the country that it's referring to, they often use tasty. Like that is the word for delicious, is tasty. So everybody was complimented me on how tasty it was. And my grandmother even went so far as to say it's very tasteful. I guess that was probably like my proudest moment in Accra was feeding the entire family this dish that I'd become famous for in London and then being very pleased with it. I had an amazing time. Like, I had this reconnection with my family. I found out all this amazing intel on my dad. Found out that people gravitated to him as, like, a cool character who would, like, make things happen. He used to put on events and parties, which I also used to do when I lived in Brighton, and, like, organise buses to take people to parties, which I also used to do. And he won, like, the Commonwealth Writing Prize when he was 12 years old, and that's how he got his first trip to London. The prize was a trip to London. That's how he fell in love with London. And so just having that, like, all these, like, small details about him, like, oh, he's really funny, he's really charming, he's really... He was a really great writer. He used to put on loads of events, and suddenly I started to, like, see where I got certain things from that I had no understanding of about me and they were like oh so he did I got that from him somehow you know so that was that was nice is to be like to, to realize the similarities between us more than the differences and then it was kind of like meeting my dad for the first time it also seems like in a way you know you you discover the the mycelium that connect you you know like these this underground root system of your family in Ghana that that it connects you and feeds you and helps you grow but it also makes this man who you're trying to learn more about an even deeper mystery because you're learning about someone who what they tell you is reflected in you but it's not so much reflected in the him that you know but you must have come back though with so many thoughts and ideas how did it change your cooking at Zoe's Ghana Kitchen oh I mean incredibly like so much because before as I said it was I was trying to keep mostly to like what I thought people wanted actually which was you know kenke and fish uh, groundnut soup it, it was very sort of um linear Ghanaian, Ghanaian food and my confidence with changing it up wasn't very expansive so it was really just more about me changing how it might look on the plate and then it was about changing what the food tasted like or making new versions of things but after that trip I really came home like gung-ho and just yeah I had a lot of confidence you know what's um, ubiquitous in street food is burgers and chicken and you know, chips, especially in England. It's just like, you're, you're always up against the staples that everybody else automatically recognises and knows. And so I would have, like, this small core set of people when I started who would come and consistently come back because they loved the food. But then I would be like, why is there hundreds of people queuing for frozen chips next to me when I've got, like, this amazing homemade food? And so one of the things I did was I created a new street food menu when I got back, and I, I decided that... I'm going to draw people in with what they think they know. So I made plantain chips and like chips was in big letters and plantain was in small. And it was like jollof fried chicken, chickens in you know, fried chickens, massive. And people don't know what the jollof bit is, but it's fine. I'll explain it when they get here. So it was about bringing them in. And so that's how I started to, to then start creating a more, a reimagined idea of what Ghanaian cuisine might be. I like that. I like that evolution. Or I like where you've arrived. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to do a deeper dive into ingredients because as I teased before, I've learned so much about some extraordinary ingredients. We're going to talk about authenticity, cultural appropriation, and things like that with the amazing Zoe. So stay with us.
This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple, natural ingredients. It all began with buckwheat. I am obsessed with buckwheat because my husband, Barkley, is now gluten-free, but buckwheat is the way to go. The company's founders, Karen and Steve Getz, added nuts and seeds and dried fruits and baked them into this incredibly delicious, easy-to-enjoy crisp. Their friends loved them, their family loved them, everyone craved them. Why? Because they've got this unexpected flavor and chewy meets crispy texture. They're a family-owned and operated business, and they work with their local community and farmers to celebrate everything that has to do with Maine. And as you guys all know, I'm obsessed with Maine. So when they're thinking about what to make with these crisps, it's their tartary buckwheat with pure maple syrup. They were thinking about health and flavor that they wanted everyone to share and enjoy. Because snack time is your time, you got to check out these crisps. Learn more at maincrisp.com. Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. And I'm really excited to be talking about Zoe's Ghana Kitchen with Zoe Ajanya. So, Zoe, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that you were trying to make the food of Ghana more accessible. I also know and notice that in the cookbook, there are a lot of ingredients that people will not be familiar with because they're true to the place. And it's an evolution in us as cooks that a cookbook like this feels accessible. But I'm wondering, what was the conversation in your head or with others when you were talking about, I want dawa dawa, I'm not going to pronounce them right, but you want the spices in there. And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you thought about accessibility when a lot of the ingredients aren't accessible, say, at your corner store? Yeah, since this was first written, I went through as many of the recipes as I could, corrected anything that I felt should have been improved by now. And I was able to put back into the book a lot of the ingredients that I left out the first time. Even though I had the um, information about the ingredients in the book, so I had the index of this is this, this is that, lots of the recipes didn't use some of those ingredients because the conversation with my publisher at the time was about accessibility in a different way like as in oh people aren't gonna be able to get this so do substitutions and I think back then I was a little bit more naive and less of a strong voice in food I wasn't as assertive as I should have been perhaps in making sure that even if I was going to give substitutions, I was going to put the original recipe in. Do you know what I mean? But luckily, Voracious picked up this book and gave me the opportunity to to do it again slightly differently. So I did put back in a lot of the ingredients because over time, even just in the six, five or six years that have passed, so much more is available to us in terms of accessibility of ingredients. And of course, in the meantime, I've also opened my own online spice shop where I can fill some of the gaps in for people. I got very frustrated with writing recipes for publications where there was constantly like, can you swap this for something? And I'd be like, well, no, there is nothing like that. And then it's like, well, I have to give them now five different ingredients to try and make that flavour happen. I didn't like that compromise. So I thought, well, if I start doing this myself, then... Everybody uses the internet today. Everybody purchases ingredients on the internet. I can have a short supply chain with my suppliers and feel really good about that, feel really good about educating my consumers on what that means and why it's important. And also I can give them the recipes and the ingredients or at least some of the ingredients that I consider essential so to make it easier for them to get hold of it and then have a more authentic experience with this book. I had that experience because I got things from your shop and I had never tasted anything like them. When you talk about not finding adequate substitutions, I really understand why. Do you want to talk maybe about the five or six spices that are true to the cuisine that are transformative and you know, maybe what some of the the uses of those are? Yeah, so things like, for example, dawa dawa, which in Nigeria they call it iru. So more people in America, I think, are familiar with Nigerian names for food than they are Ghanaian. But yeah, iru is fermented locust beans. So it's just this wonderful thing because 
you can have it in like a fresh sticky form or you can have it in dry bean form which you can grind yourself or you can have it in a powdered form and it it's full of savory protein amami in a way that is just really unreplicable from any other kinds of flavors so it's very very stinky it has that fermented stinky nose to it but in the cooking of it it's a real flavor enhancer so whatever you're putting it into it will just develop and expand the flavor um, tenfold and it's also really good substitute for meat protein so I definitely always recommend people to use Dawa Dawa. And then things like grains of Salem, which are this beautiful kind of caterpillar-looking, sticky pod that grows on a branch. And it's just full of very complex, wonderful flavour. And I find that, honestly, like, if you crack one or two of those open, first of all, you're going to get these amazing, smoky, or like a barbecue sort of smell. Then you get, like, this eucalyptus mentholated is very close uh, to black cardamom that that kind of same um complexity of flavors going through it and all of that flavor is in the husk so you just need to snap it open and pop it into if you're making a stew or a soup or anything like that it really really just deepens the flavors i love these ingredients because they cheat your way to success you know what I mean it's like you have very little to do but crack open that thing and add it to the pot and people will think that you're a miracle worker it can be so transformative um let's take on some of the other topics that are very close to your heart you've done a lot of work around cultural appropriation in the last few years and it's something you teach people about. It's something that's very important to you. Can you just tell our listeners the work that you've been doing? Interestingly, like this is a topic I've been talking about in the London food scene for many years, honestly, since I first got into the game as somebody who, I mean, I told you that when I started in food, I was concerned about whether or not I was going to culturally appropriate my own culture. And that was back in 2010. So, you know, it's been a topic of interest and dear to me, at least for as long as that time, but also because I'd seen how cultural appropriation had had its effects in music and fashion and other areas. So why shouldn't it affect food? And of course it does. And, you know, what is it? It's like cultural appropriation is where people are, you know, taking advantage of a third culture that they might not have any affinity or relationship with and presenting it to... Um, usually a white western audience as something new and as recently discovered and therefore taking ownership of it without crediting the culture it comes from and usually without any financial compensation to people who are part of the culture as in excluding the culture from the thing you're making right so great examples of this are it happens all the time in recipe writing tom carriage did it recently in his book where he's got um, a recipe for suya And it's like, okay, Tom Kerridge, what the hell do you know about West African cuisine? And why should we be even paying attention to you talking about a recipe for suya? And in that recipe, he doesn't credit where he says it's a Nigerian this, but there's no reference to how he got it. There's no reference to who taught it to him and why he wants to share it. It's like, oh, this exists and I've made this recipe. Here you go. So the, the problem with that is, A... It's not his area of expertise or interest. So there are other people in the world, other chefs of colour from the culture who should be getting this, this, the time and space and platform that he gets to talk about that recipe, about their own recipes, potentially. And or so many examples, and street food is a particular criminal for offending here in the UK, where people go on holiday, right, to Thailand or Bali or Korea or whatever they consider an exotic, in inverted commas, location and have a great time. And then they're probably ex-bankers or ex-lawyers or whatever and they're having a midlife crisis. And then they're like, um, oh, that was really fun. I love that food. I'm going to come and make a a business out of that and then start a, a Thai street food business, but they're not being true to what Thai food is. So they're re-representing that food in a way that isn't, again, high air quotes, authentic. And there's no reference to the culture. They don't employ anybody from the culture. They don't employ anybody who's qualified to cook that food. And they kind of whitewash it as their version of the thing, which is bad because A, it confuses people over then what is 
the actual food. So you're misrepresenting a culture, which is why you're appropriating it. And you're disenfranchising people who are from the culture who do that already, but probably don't get the same perks and benefits as you because they're not white men with money in order to be able to take that business further. So, I mean, we should have moved on from colonial times, but we still live through them is the point, you know. It's still happening where people's cultures are being stolen. And there's a knock-on effect of that, right? So, for example, let me give you a specific example. So between 2010 and 2018, I spent all that time going banging on about these ingredients and flavours in the naive expectation that I was opening a market for these ingredients beyond the diaspora, therefore thinking that, you know, people are now going to be buying more of this stuff and that means that farmers in Ghana are going to be getting more wealth and more blah, 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 a really sort of unicorn idea, I suppose, stupidly. And then it became apparent um, when I went back to Ghana in 2018 and I was really struggling to find some core staple ingredients like millet and grains of paradise and things like that. And the conversations I was having with chefs there was that, you know, it is becoming increasingly harder to find these ingredients because big multinational companies have over the last 20 years come to Ghana and brought up a lot of the um, available farmland and agriculture and they're outpricing local co-ops and small holdings in terms of they're not being able to make profit margins anymore. And then also they can't even get access to the you know, some exporters can't even get hold of the grains and the stock to export because these multinationals buy it all up. Because they can, because they have the, the finance to, the capacity to. And so this presented a new issue for me. It's like, oh shit, what have I been doing? I thought I was doing something good. And I've actually been co-creating this problem. So then I realised, okay, so how do we stop that now? Like, how do we decolonize this problem? Okay, I can, I'm going to start a spice shop where I can have this conversation, at least with my consumers, right, and people who are our followers and customers, it's a place to start where we can be like, okay, it's really important that when you buy these ingredients, you're buying black and you're buying black African because there are communities whose livelihoods depend on them being able to grow and sell these ingredients and also it's part of the culture. And then there's this other thing happening in parallel where this kind of white Western standard of what is considered... Um, fair trade or what is considered vegan like all of these new standards that are in the world are now being impressed upon African countries and it's like wait a minute what that's your standard like what's that got to do with us and just to highlight here that these are foodways that are thousands of years old right that predate industrial farming and agriculture and all that nonsense that are white inventions of the west so inherently, much of what is grown in small holdings and co-ops is organic because they don't have fertiliser and all of these other things. And to meet these standards costs money, is the point, and it costs resources that people don't have. So they're doubly getting edged out of their own market. And so having my spice shop and talking about these spices and encouraging people to buy black and buy black African when they interact with this cookbook or they interact with any West African food is super important because the truth is we can't decolonize the food industry. It is actually impossible to strip back the last 500 years of how we talk, think, rationalize around food and how it's sold and commodified. But we can start to unpick parts of it that make it a more agreeable food system. That at least going to the next 500 years, we're more conscious of what's been the last 500 years. And we allow the makers and artisans and farmers and black people around the world, not just black, but people of color generally, whose cuisines and cooking and cooking methods and cooking tools and ingredients have been stripped and remodeled and repurposed for a white audience to the point where it's really hard for them now to make a living from what they've been doing for thousands of years. And that is something we need to stop. There's this idea that there is a way to begin small, right? Because one can't say, well, it's impossible to decolonize the food system, which may be a fact as it's in its entirety. But it is possible to educate people, to work on alternate supply chains, to encourage people to buy differently and think differently. And I think that's, you know, that's the power of how you're spending your time now. Um, I'm curious 
was there something that precipitated your voice getting stronger and more outspoken? Because it's absolutely true that you speak for yourself, but your topics are, are broader and your voice is, is louder, which makes it more powerful. When the book came out, and in the run-up to the book, the first time, as I think probably this happens to a lot of people, I got, I started believing maybe some of the smoke people were blowing up my ass. You know, listening to your own reviews and press and I got very distracted suddenly from what my mission had been and my goals and and suddenly I felt in competition with the rest of the food industry and I felt in competition with yada 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 but also who I am and my personality was in a bit of conflict with all of that because I had been outspoken and like any subject anybody wants to ask me about I would just speak honestly in the truth as I do now but there was a moment in the middle when I was thrust into the limelight when I was surrounded by gatekeepers suddenly like my voice changed and I became more complicit more compliant I was bending more to what the environment required of me at the time there's a, there's a really difficult balancing act, I think, and people who do this really well, I have so much respect for them. But yeah, in 2016, 2017, I trusted the people who were in food around me to be, to be advising me and guiding me. And I think that that meant that I limited my voice more, like the whole code switching thing, the whole like being a loud black woman and being labelled difficult and angry because every time something came up that didn't, wasn't comfortable for me, I would obviously mention it. But it was really clear then that you know I attracted the label of being the difficult black woman and you know all of the stereotypes that go around that. And so I think I, I, I pulled back a bit because of that. But then I, in a year of saying yes to everybody and people pleasing my ass off essentially. It got to a point of frustration with the industry and my part and place in it where I got tired of being limited and ignored and, like, there were so many obvious problems that people... Nobody wanted to talk about and nobody wanted to address. And I'd hit my limit. Um, And I just decided that I didn't care what the consequences were for me in terms of my career in food. I would speak my mind and I would speak openly about things that I thought other people weren't and that needed to be spoken about and I suppose that's where the where I started to think about decolonizing the food industry as a serious thing and started to consider black book as a business concept that didn't exist yet in the UK and that needed to I took my courage I suppose from that position because it does require courage because because there's a lot of people who don't agree with much of what happens in food whether it's publishing or hospitality or whatever, but people keep stum, as we say in London, keep quiet because they're they're afraid they won't get booked for work. They won't that that brand won't hire them if they speak out against that, you know, or that publication won't like it if you mention that they've just had this recipe that culturally appropriates X and Y. And it's like people are scared to speak their truth most of the time because there's because there is a direct consequence on your career. There is a direct consequence on your earning potential. But I don't care. It seems like the opposite is also true. I mean, in your case, in speaking out, in being true, opportunities come to you and more will come over time as the pendulum swings. And I think being direct and true, you know, there's so many currencies in the world. And yes, we all need to make money, but we need to make money in a way that is true and sustainable. And to be sustainable as a human, you actually have to, you know, be internally aligned so I know that you have, I think it's a Britishism, you have many, thing, many things on the boil. There are a few things that you're, that you're working on. Um, what are you most excited about? Um, right now, actually, I'm editing an amazing anthology of people of colour's voices in food writing. So it's talking about food culture and politics, essentially. And I've got some amazing people signed up for that. I've got Jamia Robinson, Mavis Jay, Rima Sill, Preeti Mistry. Ashton Berry's come on board, Crystal Mack, um, and Dorothy Porker from Amsterdam. I've tried to curate, curate this international, mostly women, obviously, because it's my thing, promoting women's voices. So, yeah, this lovely collection of international women's voices on foods, really different perspectives and lenses and experiences across hospitality, restaurants, from mental health to self-care to why a certain cuisine is, or a dish from a cuisine is cooked the way it's cooked, and 
for somebody else, like A. Passard, she's talking about how this one particular dish she cooks with her mother always puts them kind of in orchestra together when the rest of the time they are really dissonant and do not get on. So, you know, there's a really beautiful collection of really strong voices there and it's crowdfunded on the Unbounders platform. So I really encourage everybody to pledge or at least go and have a look at it. And if you can't pledge, share it with somebody who you think might enjoy that collection of voices and pledge to support it. And then I'm working on a book, a new book called New African Cuisine, which is a working title, which is a canon, a desperately needed canon, I think, of African chefs from the continent and in the diaspora who are actually focused on cooking foods from Africa. And so I just want to give the world a list of at least 100 African chefs who probably deserve a Michelin star right now and who just don't have the platform or the attention that they deserve. And also it's a way of kind of just showing how much over such a short period of time, because we don't have this legacy in Africa, we don't have the culinary legacy that other countries or continents have, like Europe with the Italians and the French, because, you know so much of our history has been in battle for survival and sustenance. I feel like for me, it's part of the research that I do and I want like I want to learn more. But if you collected the great voices, it's exactly like your spices, like your spices to me are a shortcut to a good meal. And your book will be a shortcut to understanding the continent in a way that I've never understood it before. So I'm excited for both of those books to make an appearance. So I, at the end of every show, I, I ask my guest to pay it forward to a woman who they think more people need to know about. And so I'd ask you that question. Who, what, what woman in the world of food or hospitality do you think more people need to know about and why? Do you know who I'm going to pass this mic to is Chef Mavis J, formerly one half of Food Plus People. I think Mavis J is a phenomenal human, not least because she is such an adept and great cook. She's also really modest as well. I think she's like won quite a lot of stuff that she doesn't talk about. But there's that. And then just how much work she does for communities. So especially the queer community. She's part of the Queer Foundation, um, Queer F&B Foundation, and she works with God's Love. We deliver a lot. She used to work for, was it Brownsville Community College? She used to run cooking programs there. She's constantly trying to bring up young chefs, like train and bring up young black food talent. And she's really, really a key linchpin. And I think the queer, not just the queer black food scene, but just queer food scene, full stop. And then she's just like a really wonderful human with like a beautiful heart and a huge amount of integrity. And she's just very mission driven and community driven. She's extraordinary. As you say, very community driven, really out to help others and uplift others, as you are too. I'm so thrilled to have had you on this show. Um, I'm so glad that I get to be on some piece of this journey. I can't wait to get to eat your food in the United States since I can cook it myself. But, you know, honestly, I'd rather have you do it. Um, and I never made it to the any of the pop-ups in London. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for your, the voice that you share with the world. Everyone who's listening, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And I'll be back again next week with another extraordinary guest who inspires me. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.